Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. You can open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 14. Um, just one other quick announcement as... Uh, Many ministries are starting. I've been telling you about Christianity Explored, which is um, a course for those who are new to the Christian faith or those exploring the Christian faith. We do have a class starting at seven weeks. It'll be at uh, the home of my wife and me. We had originally planned to start this Thursday. We're going to push that back one week. So we're going to start September 23rd. So uh, another week available for you to sign up. There is a sign-up sheet at the Welcome Center. Uh, If you have questions about that, come and talk to me, but we would love for you to join that group or to invite somebody who you think might benefit uh, from an introduction to the Christian faith. So we're going to be looking at Genesis 14 this morning as we go through the book of Genesis. We'll be in verses 17 to 24. Um, I didn't get to know my wife's father very well because he passed away pretty soon after Mary and I were married. We were married in 1994. I think um, her father died in 1996. But a very interesting thing happened shortly after he passed away. Um, This happened to our sister-in-law. Her name is Pat. And Pat tells this story how she was with her children and was driving through Atlanta on I-75 and in heavy traffic and got a flat tire. And so she pulled the car over to the side of the road and feeling uh, a little panicky, a little concerned, husband not with her. And uh, somebody very soon after that pulled over right in front of her. And this guy got out of the truck and, and came and asked her to roll down the window. And uh, Pat was you know, a little concerned to begin with, but there was something about the presence of this guy that just kind of put her at ease. And so she wasn't alarmed. And the guy said, just stay in the car. I'll take care of it. And he just went back, got to work, fixed the tire, came back to the window. And Pat looked again, offered to give him some money, wouldn't take it. <clears throat> and off he went, got in his truck and, and drove away. And Pat said it was at that time when he was saying goodbye after the job was done that that she realized that he looked exactly like Mary's dad or her father-in-law. And and she was just convinced that this is my father-in-law coming (laughs) to help us. This, This kind of mysterious figure who just showed up out of nowhere and brought this blessing to Pat and her kids but who pointed her attention to somebody else. And that's exactly what we're going to see here in Genesis 14. There is a mysterious figure. He comes out of nowhere. He brings blessing, and he points our hearts to someone else. This guy's name is Melchizedek. I looked at the top 10 baby names for 2021, and this was not among them. Melchizedek. Um, I can at least pronounce it, but we're going to be learning about Melchizedek. He is this mysterious figure. That is, we just don't know anything really about him. Comes out of nowhere. We don't get really any background info. He comes and he brings blessing, and then he just kind of disappears. 
Um, but we are all blessed by learning more about Melchizedek, but in particular as we learn the one to whom Melchizedek points our hearts. So this story of Melchizedek is at the very end here of Genesis chapter 14. Little review, Um, if you've been here for a while, you know we're going through a sermon series on the life of Abraham, and so last week we heard this story of how um, there was this battle between these kings, the foreign kings and the local kings, and you might remember that the foreign kings just wiped out the local kings, and they kidnapped Lot, Lot who is Abraham's nephew, and when Abraham found out about the kidnapping of his nephew, he launched into action. He got his 318 men, he got his allies together, and he pursued these foreign kings. He defeated them, and he rescued his nephew and brought his nephew back with all the spoils uh, and, and many other things. And so what we're picking up here now in Genesis 14 is kind of the victory parade, I guess. You know, when an army wins a battle, typically they come back home and uh, everybody cheers for them and, and uh, gives them a warm welcome. Something kind of like that is happening. Uh, Abram has been victorious, and now he's coming back, and he meets these two people, and one of them is this mysterious figure named Melchizedek. So let's read this. Uh, if you're able to stand, please do so. Genesis 14, 17 through 24. <clears throat> It says, after his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that's Abram, at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share. Holy Spirit, come, please, open our eyes and hearts. Let us behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So what's really key to understanding Uh, this passage here in Genesis 14, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you. You can uh, grab that and take a look at it. I think this passage is on page 6. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that paperback Bible home with you. But what's very important to understanding this passage is to know that there is a contrast being presented to us here, a contrast between two distinct individuals. One of them is this person named or called the the king of Sodom. You see that in uh, verse 17. The king of Sodom went up to meet him. Now, you might remember Sodom. According to chapter 13, verse 13, Sodom is 
filled with people who were sinning greatly against God. This is a very wicked place. Sodom represents wickedness in the scriptures. And so king of Sodom comes to meet Abram. But the other individual who comes is this person named Melchizedek. Verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now Salem is just a shortened version of the word Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the last part of that word, is Salem. And so it's kind of interesting to consider that Jerusalem, the holy city of God that we'll read about throughout the rest of Scripture, was one t- at one time a Canaanite city. And Salem is the city that existed there before it eventually became Jerusalem. So Melchizedek is the king of Salem. But what we find here that's very interesting, if you look at verses 19 and 20, is that this person, Melchizedek, who lives in this Canaanite city, this what we would expect to be a very unbelieving pagan city, a city that's far away from God, this Melchizedek happens to be a believer in the one true God. Look at what he says. He blesses Abram, and he says, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High. He wants God to be blessed, not just Abram. Apparently, Melchizedek is a believer in the one true God, even though he lives in this place called Salem in this Canaanite city. It's just, uh, I think it's kind of a side comment here. It's just interesting, isn't it, how you just never know how the gospel is going to get to people. You just never know how you're going to find somebody in the farthest reaches of the earth who hears the gospel and believes. You know, it's very often we just assume that, oh, they they don't know the gospel. They're not going to believe. They're this way or they're that way. We might, might think that Melchizedek would not stand a chance to believe in the one true God, but he does. And that's because, friends, there, there is a basic instinct in all of us, and throughout all human history there has been this basic instinct to acknowledge the transcendent, to acknowledge that we're not alone, to acknowledge that, yes, there is a God. Sociologists will tell you as you study history that in the farthest cultures that we know of going back in history as far as we can, they've been believers in some kind of a deity, some kind of a transcendence. And that continues today. A lot of people are saying, well, the world is getting more and more secular. People are believing in God less and less. That's actually not true. Uh, There's a sociologist named uh, Jack Goldstone says this, sociologists jumped the gun when they said the growth of modernization would bring a growth of unbelief. That is not what we're seeing. People need religion. And so we see that in Melchizedek. He just has a heart that is ready to believe. He's come to faith in the one true God. There is a religious impulse in all of us. The question, though, that is raised is what religion do you believe? And What God do you believe in? And what is your conception of the God that exists? Because we're not called to just believe in some vague deity. We're not called to just have a religious impulse. There's a particular God who is revealed to us in the Scriptures that we're called to believe in. And that's kind of what this passage is going to tell us more about. So that's just by way of introduction here to this passage. we got these two individuals. The king of Sodom represents wickedness. Melchizedek, a believer in the true God, and here's Abram, and he's got to deal with them both. And so that's how I'm going to organize this sermon. We're just going to look at how Abraham responds to one and how he responds to the other. So just two things here. The first thing we see is that Abram refuses 
an offer from the world. When he meets the king of Sodom, we're going to see that Abram refuses what is offered to him from this wicked king from Sodom. So, again, here's the setting. Verse 17, it says, after his return from the defeat of Kedar Laamar. So, again, Abram has led his troops. He's defeated these armies. He's come back. He's rescued Lot, and, um, and, and he's coming back. And so, Verse 17 then tells us, the king of Sodom then went out to meet him. Now, you might remember the king of Sodom from last week as we heard about this battle. Do you remember the king of Sodom fled in the midst of the battle? When the foreign kings came in and attacked, he fled, and he was so frightened and scared that it looks like he lowered himself into the tar pits in order to escape uh, the invading enemy. He's the king, and he has abandoned his people in fleeing the battle. I mean, this king is not a very heroic guy. Not a lot here to respect in the king of Sodom. So he, he disappeared, he, he hid somewhere, but now Abram has come back victorious, and now suddenly the king of Sodom shows up. Um, he comes out of hiding, and he decides that it's safe, and so he comes and he approaches Abram. Now, Abram here is the guy who just saved his skin. Abraham is the hero here. Abraham is the guy that the king of Sodom owes his life to. What the king of Sodom ought to be saying to Abram here is, Abram, thank you. Abram, I owe you everything. Abram, what can I do for you? That's what he ought to be saying. But what does he say? Verse 21, skipping ahead a little bit. Verse 21, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. This is not a request. This is a command. The king of Sodom comes to this great heroic warrior, Abram, and dictates the terms of an agreement. Here's the way it's going to be, Abram. Uh, I will um, take the persons, and you can have the goods for yourself. He wants to strike a deal. King of Sodom is thinking, what can I get out of this? A, a heart of no gratitude, no reverence whatsoever. I mean, this guy is just a scoundrel. I mean, this king of Sodom is wicked, he's greedy, he's cowardly, and he's conniving. And so we're seeing this great contrast. That's, that's the one person, the king of Sodom. He's going to be contrasted greatly with, with Melchizedek here. But Abram now must make a decision because an offer has been presented to him. And it's an offer from the world because Sodom represents the world. Sodom represents wickedness. And the king of Sodom comes. He makes this deal. And so now Abram's got to make a decision. Am I going to accept this? Am I going to take what, what he offers? I think the question might go like this a little bit. Am I going to align myself with wickedness here? Am I going to chum up and make friends with the world? I mean, there might have been a temptation, even given how conniving and greedy and cowardly this guy was. He could get some goods. He has more friends. He could rely now on the king of Sodom to make his name great instead of relying on God who promised earlier that he would make his name great. There's a temptation here for Abram. Am I going to accept what this wicked person is offering? And the answer is no. <laughs> Abram very clearly refuses what is being offered to him. Look at verses 22 and 23. Abram says to the king of Sodom, 
Okay? So the king is saying, look, you know, give me the people that you captured. Uh, you can take you know, all the goods, all the plunder yourself. And Abram says to him, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. That is, I am taking an oath here. I have promised. I lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours. That's just like an idiom. A, a, a thread is thin, a sandal strap is thick. It's just a way of saying those two extremes and everything in between. I'll take nothing at all from what is yours. Lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have, have eaten. So Abram is just saying, no deal, king of Sodom. I'm not interested. I reject what you have offered here because I don't want anybody saying that I have any alignment with you at all. I don't want there to be any perception that there is some cooperation or relationship or friendship between me and you. I am a worshiper of the one most high true God. You are the king of a wicked place and rebellion against God. And I don't want relationship with you. That's what he's saying. He's just rejecting what is offered to him here. I don't want anybody saying that the reason I'm rich is because of you. Now, I know that we're not supposed to be so concerned about appearances and what people think of us, but that apparently was part of Abram's consideration here. He was concerned about his reputation before others in the world. He had been called by God as a recipient of the promises. He had a witness to the world to be concerned about, and the same is true for you and me. We have to be careful about the decisions we make and how they're perceived by the world. No, we don't want to live in slavery to what others think of us. We don't want to live with a desire to please people so that we get their applause. But we should, as Christians, be concerned about the appearance of our being aligned with wickedness. Here's what uh, the Scriptures say. Remember in 1 John, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. Now notice here, in the world, the world by, by loving the world, that doesn't mean loving a good meal or loving your family. You know, food and family is in the world. Is this saying you can't love those things? No. Notice what it is. It's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. It's the, it's the greed and the lust and the pride. It's these sinful desires that come out of our hearts. That's worldliness. And what John is warning us against is loving that kind of thing, loving self-advancement, loving what we can gain, loving our own glory. That's worldliness. And Abram will have no part of an alignment with the king of Sodom. John Calvin says... Let us aim exclusively at this, that we may be approved by God and may be satisfied to have his commendation or his approval alone, that we may regard it as of more value than all the applauses of the whole world. Friends, what do you want more, the applause of God or the applause of the world? Are you more concerned about looking good in the eyes of God or looking good in the eyes of those who live in rebellion against God? We are constantly faced, aren't we, with these decisions. Life as a Christian is just a series of temptations and challenges. We have to make decisions. Are we going to side with light or darkness, with truth or falsehood, with righteousness or wickedness? Life is a drama. 
We're facing these all the time. Will I resent in my heart or forgive? Will I withhold or will I give? Will I complain or will I rejoice? Will I give in to temptation or will I resist temptation? Will I doubt or will I believe? That's the Christian life. And Abram here is faced with it. He has an offer from the king of Sodom and he refuses it without hesitation. And there's an example for us here in our approach to the world. So that's the first thing we see. Abram's not interested in the king of Sodom. But by contrast, Abram receives a blessing from God. His response to Melchizedek is very different. There's a blessing that comes from God to Abram through the mediation of this mysterious guy named Melchizedek. Now, I'm going to get into some kind of technicalities here, uh, but stick with me. There are two things <clears throat> about Melchizedek that are worth noting. And that one is that he is a priest. Look at the very end of 18, verse 18. He was a priest, it says. He was priest of God Most High. Uh, a, a priest is one who has spiritual responsibilities, we might say. A, a, a priest is one who mediates, who, who, uh, who brings about, who gives to others blessing, spiritual blessing. By the way, this is the first mention of a priest in all the Bible, Melchizedek. So Melchizedek functions as a priest. There's a spiritual responsibility here, but he also functions as a king. Again, verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem. We already made mention of that, Salem, shortened version of Jerusalem. By the way, Salem comes from the root word shalom, that means peace. Maybe you know that, Hebrew word for shalom, peace, shalom, Salem. There's a very strong similarity between the two. Hebrews 7 calls Melchizedek the king of peace. So he is a priest and he is a king. Priest has a spiritual responsibility. The king, you might say, has a, a political responsibility. He's the one who runs the country and determines when to go to battle and, and that kind of thing. So what makes Melchizedek so mysterious in this passage is that he is priest and king at the same time. That's unusual because, remember, Moses is writing Genesis. He's writing Genesis to the nation of Israel Many, many years later, the nation of Israel, they are used to the Old Testament law and the history of Israel, and what is unknown in Israel is any priest that serves as a king, nor any king that serves as a priest. These two are to be separated from each other, and there is wisdom in that, I will say. You don't want the President of the United States to be your pastor. And I assure you, you don't want your pastor to be the president. <laughs> There's wisdom in separating these two offices, and that's the way it was throughout Old Testament Israel, separation between priest and king. Maybe you remember this story in 1 Samuel 13, the story of Saul. Saul was the first king in Israel. Samuel was the priest at that time. And do you remember there was a battle with the Philistines and Samuel told Saul, he said, wait till I get there. They were separated. Wait till I get there to offer the sacrifices. The priest is the one who offers sacrifices. Kings don't offer sacrifices. Priests do. Samuel tells Saul, wait. 
And so there's Saul, and the battle is getting uh, more intense, and he's getting a little bit worried, and he's waiting for Samuel to come, and Samuel doesn't show up. And Saul wants Samuel to come to offer up the sacrifices, and then what happens? Saul panics, and he goes ahead, and he offers the sacrifice himself as the king. And then Samuel shows up and says, what did you do? He says, you fool. He says, you did a foolish thing here. The kingdom of God is now going to be taken from your hands. That's how serious it was for a king to do a priestly duty. The kingship was removed from Saul. Many years later, we see then David comes and takes his place. So that's what's making Melchizedek such an unusual figure here. He's a king and he's a priest. So Melchizedek comes on the scene. What does he do? Well, he blesses Abram. Uh, This is what the king of Sodom should have done to Abram. But Melchizedek blesses, verse um, 18, he brings Melchizedek bread and wine, so he refreshes him physically. And then in verses 19 and 20, as I've already read, Melchizedek brings a spiritual blessing. He pronounces this spiritual blessing, blessed be you, Abram, and, and blessed be your God. And now we know how Abram responds. Abram He rejected the offer from the world from the king of Sodom, but it's a very different response here. He receives this blessing from Melchizedek. At the very end of verse 20, Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Everything that he had just gained and gathered up in that battle with the foreign kings, just immediately he gives a tenth of it right off the top and says, Melchizedek, all of this belongs to you. He gives a tenth. A tenth, you know what the word is for a tenth? It's a tithe. So this is the first time in the scriptures we see also a mention of a tithe. And this becomes kind of a foundation for what we'll read later in the Old Testament uh, for why Christians today are expected to give a tithe or a tenth of all that they have to their church. But this is a way for Abram to submit to this Melchizedek who is um, coming here as a priest to to bless him. So, Abram receives the blessing from God. Now, that's kind of the story. Um, There's a a Bob Dylan song, one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs, called Ballad of a Thin Man. And the refrain says, there is something happening here and you don't know what it is. And I would say in this passage in Genesis 14, the same applies. There's something happening here and you don't know what it is until we get further revelation, until God fleshes this out as the years go by. And we're going to learn more about what is going on here. We're going to learn more about who is this Melchizedek, this mysterious person, and who is it that he points to? Who is this really about? Is this about Melchizedek? It's about somebody bigger. It's about somebody greater. So there's two ways that we see this. Further revelation comes from the Psalms and then later in Hebrews. And it's just kind of unpacked who Melchizedek is. So first of all, there's this psalm in 110, Psalm 110. um, And this um, was like a thousand years after Abram left. And King David comes. And he writes in the 110th Psalm. He says, He says, the Lord says to my Lord, and uh, David here is referring to a king, and so you notice he's referring to the king, he's the Lord, that's God, is referring to my Lord, so now he's referring to this king as as Lord. So it's kind of an odd way to say things, but it's like David is 
is anticipating some kind of a future king that he's going to call God, basically. This king is going to be Lord. And the Lord says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your, your footstool. I mean, this is going to be a mighty king who's going to defeat all of his enemies. And then he goes on and he says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, talking about this future king called Lord, that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so here, under the Holy Spirit, David indicates that there's going to be this king coming in the future, and we're going to call him Lord, and there's going to be something about him that's going to resemble Melchizedek. Melchizedek is setting a pattern in some way for this future king who is going to come, but, but we're still wondering, who is this? This is a thousand years after Abraham, but this is a thousand years before Jesus Christ comes. But when we get to the book of Hebrews, we get even more revelation that tells us more about who this Melchizedek really is. So a thousand years after David, the writer to the Hebrews says this, after being made perfect, this is referring to Jesus, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And now the lights should go on. It's like, that's what Genesis 14 is about. That's what Melchizedek is about. Melchizedek makes us think of Jesus. Remember when I told you the Old Testament is about Jesus? The whole Bible is about Jesus? Sometimes that's harder to see than other times. This is a time when it's very easy to see. <laughs> Hebrews is telling us Melchizedek is pointing to Jesus. The mystery is revealed now we know who this is. It's like if you've ever been in a, in, a, in a room maybe and you kind of see a shadow on the wall but you don't hear anything but there's something shadowing. You turn around and you look and it's like, oh, it's your daughter or your husband or, or wife. You, know, you saw the shadow. It was mysterious. You didn't know really what to make of it but then you look behind and then you saw the substance of the shadow. Melchizedek is like a shadow. Jesus is the substance the shadow is fulfilled in who Jesus is. He's the flesh and bone reality. Melchizedek's shadow casting forward to this great Savior named Jesus. And so what we find then later in Hebrews 7, and actually we don't have time to go into everything that Hebrews says, but Melchizedek seems like this obscure individual, and yet you look at Hebrews and he seems like completely and totally central to the biblical story because the writer of Hebrews talks so much about him. But we're going to uh, just consider the first few verses of Hebrews 7. I know that's kind of small, but I wanted to get that all in one screen. So Hebrews 7, the writer to the Hebrews is now unpacking more of what Melchizedek teaches us about Jesus. And he says this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, and to Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. So four things here really quick that we're going to learn about what Melchizedek tells us about Jesus, okay? First one is this. 
that Jesus has no beginning. Here's what it says, and I just read this to you. These are just excerpts from what I just read. Referring to Melchizedek, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days. He has no beginning of days, is what the writer to the Hebrews says. He has no mother or father. Now, that's not meant to be taken literally. This is not saying that Melchizedek actually had no beginning. What the writer is saying is, is that if you look back in Genesis, there isn't any mention of his father or mother. And there isn't any mention of a, a genealogy, like there is in so many other occasions, right? We've been through some genealogies in this sermon series, and we're going to go through some more. The Bible loves genealogies, because the Bible's always telling you about people's ancestors and predecessors. But we don't get anything like that about Melchizedek. That's why I'm saying he's mysterious. I mean, he did have a mother and father. It's just we just don't know who they are. There's something, it just seems like he just came out of nowhere. It's like he had no beginning. But Melchizedek is just simply paving the way for the one who comes in the person of Jesus who really didn't have any beginning. Jesus Christ is the pre-existent one. The scripture says he was before all things. In the Nicene Creed, we read that he was begotten, not made. He was not created. He is the second person of the eternal trinity who took on flesh, born in a manger and lived on this earth, but Jesus has no beginning. This is where we differ from the cults who say that he does have a beginning, that he was created somehow. No, Jesus is eternal. And Melchizedek points us to that. By saying that Jesus is eternal, what we're really saying is, is that he is God Almighty. Because who else is eternal but God himself? Jesus has no beginning. That makes him utterly unique. That makes him different than all other religious leaders that you might consider, Allah or Buddha or Joseph Smith or anybody. There's nobody like this. No beginning. But also we see that Jesus has no end. Look at chapter 7, verse 3. Again, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days, I already read that, nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Again, this is about Melchizedek. Again, it's not that Melchizedek lived forever. It's just that we don't learn anything more about him. For all the other major figures in the Bible, we read about how they die. We're going to read about how Abram dies. Moses dies. Joseph dies. Nothing about Melchizedek dying. Not that he didn't die, because he did. It's just the Bible doesn't tell us anything about that, and that gives us a point, a clue about what Jesus is like. Jesus doesn't die. He died once, right, on the cross when he gave up his life to pay the penalty for your sins and for mine, but, but he is resurrected from the dead and he's never going to die again. He's never going to die. He lives forever. He continues as a priest forever. What does a priest do? He mediates spiritual blessing. This is what Jesus does for you and me, constantly mediating blessings to you and me. And he never quits. He never stops. He never sleeps. He never takes a break. He just blesses you constantly. That's his job as a priest. This is what um, Hebrews later says, Hebrews 7.25, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's you, and that's me. Have you ever wondered, what is Jesus doing right now? Right now? He's resurrected from the dead. What is he doing right now? He's interceding for you. 
He's at the right hand of the Father pleading your defense, pleading on your behalf. That's what a priest does, and this priest never dies. Jesus has no beginning. Jesus has no end. Jesus is superior to all. We read in verse 4, See how great this man was, referring to Melchizedek, whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. I mean, Abram was a great man, right? The recipient of the promises, the warrior who just won all these battles. And now he comes and sees this Melchizedek, and he's like, you know, bows down, gives him a tenth. It's like there's something just mighty and great, majestic about this Melchizedek. But Melchizedek just points us forward to Jesus, who is truly the one who is superior to all. As we read in Colossians, Jesus is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, and the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might have supremacy. Jesus is superior to all other religious leaders. He's superior to all other ways to be known by God, to be accepted by God. He is the almighty God-made flesh. He reigns. He rules over the universe. All things occur for him, through him, to him. He is the almighty superior God who deserves your worship and mine. Jesus is superior to all. But the fourth thing and the last thing is that Jesus offers blessing to you. Because we see here also in chapter 7, he is first, referring to Melchizedek, king of righteousness, and then he is also a king of Salem, that is, he's king of peace. So he's a priest, but he's also a king who brings righteousness and peace. He brings righteousness and peace and blesses Abram, and Abram receives it. And so that's the question now, is that Melchizedek points to Jesus, and now Jesus wants to offer you righteousness and peace. He wants you to know these things. Jesus says, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you. He doesn't want you to be filled with fear and anxiety and tension and aggravation. He wants you to be at peace. He wants you to be at peace with God. He wants you to be at peace with one another. He wants you to be at peace within. And he says, if you will come to me, I'll offer you that. You know, there's a story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He opposed Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany, and he eventually got arrested. He got put in a concentration camp. Um, he was eventually executed before the Allies came and, and liberated um, the, the Jews from the Nazis. And uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, journals when he was in prison, and there's a portion of his journals where he says, and he's kind of praying to God, and he says, God, I am lonely, but you are with me. I am restless, but you are my peace. There he is in prison, facing his death in a concentration camp, and he found peace. And that's what Jesus offers, but he doesn't just offer peace, he offers righteousness as well. He offers you the righteousness that you have got to have if you're going to stand before God and know that he is going to accept you because God is not going to accept you on the basis of your righteousness. You're not good enough. But Jesus is. Jesus is. So the question for you today as we just kind of apply this text, the question is really to you is not whether I'm going to receive the offer from the king of Sodom or bow my knee to Melchizedek. That, that's not really the question. The question is, will you bow the knee to the one that Melchizedek points to, and that is Jesus Christ? Will you appear before God one day with a righteousness that you think you've achieved? 
or will you appear before God with a righteousness that you have received by faith from Jesus? That, that's, your, that's your only hope. That's my only hope. That's why it's not just based on being religious or believing in God and some kind of vague notion. No, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no one goes to the Father, comes to the Father, but through him. Because it's only in Jesus that we have this peace and it's only in Jesus that we have this righteousness. Abram was not too proud to bow to Melchizedek. Are you too proud to bow to Jesus? Receive him, believe on his name, and receive the righteousness and peace that he offers. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for pointing us to the Savior. Um, Father, help us, Lord, as we seek to resist the offers that come to us from the world that are so enticing. Help us to resist those, and Lord, help us to live under your blessing. Just as Abram received the blessing from Melchizedek, thank you for the blessing you offer us through your son. Give us joy, give us peace, give us righteousness, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.